guess everybody's here, right? Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's go through. What was the first one? Hopefully you remember what you put up here. But Genesis one twenty eight, God blessed them. Then we have Genesis three six. The woman saw the fruit of the tree. Then we have Genesis six twelve. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Then we have Genesis excuse me nine one. Then God blessed Noah. Then we have Genesis eleven four. Then they said, "Come, let us build." Then we have Genesis eleven eight. The Lord scattered them. Then we have Genesis twelve. The Lord said to Abram. Then we have Genesis twenty six four. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars. Then we have Genesis twenty eight fourteen. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Then we have Exodus nine thirteen. Then the Lord said to Moses. Then we have Numbers fourteen thirteen. Then Moses said to the Lord. Then we have Joshua twenty three or Joshua four twenty three. The Lord your God dried up the Jordan. Then we have 1 Kings 4, 34, from all nations. Thank you. People came to listen. Um, then we have 1 Kings 8, 41, as for the foreigner who does not belong. And then we have 1 Kings 11, 4, as Solomon grew old. Then Ezekiel 36, so I poured my wrath on them. Then we have uh, Daniel 3, 28, the Nebuchadnezzar said. And then we have... Daniel 6, 25, then King Darius wrote. Then we have Jeremiah 33, 7, I'll bring Israel and Judah back from captivity. Now, this is from the psalm, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us. You might have put that somewhere else, and that's fine. But what I've done here is stuck uh, psalms and the prophets here at the end. So we have Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge. Then we have Luke 24. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Then we have Acts 1.8, where you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then Acts 11.19. Now those have been scattered. And then we have Revelation 7.9. After this, I looked in there before me. All right? Did all right? It's hard, isn't it? It's all, it's all stories we know, but it's not always the order. Alright, so we're going to just walk through and unpack this and look at this story, okay? Now, if you, you, you probably somewhere through high school or college have taken some kind of writing class and, and you've written some kind of story. And you know that every story has three things, at least three things. There's an introduction, and there's a storyline, and then a conclusion, right? Introduction to the story, the storyline of a plot, what that story is all about, and then a conclusion. And so as we look at the Bible, how many books are in the Bible? It's 66, right? Old Testament has? 39? New Testament? 27. You guys are mechanical engineers and you know math well, so you get to think. Right? 39, 20, 66 books, two testaments, but it's just one story. And so every, just like every story, introduction, storyline, and conclusion, the Bible is the same way. So we're going to walk through this story. We're going to go the introduction, then the storyline, and conclusion. And by the end, we're going to know what this thread is. All right, so let me ask you this. Now I'm going to ask you some questions, so feel free to interact. Let's 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 do this. All right. What are what are the very first words that God ever spoke to mankind? Be fruitful Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the very first card that we put up here, right? So in Genesis 1:28, okay, key verses because in this in this verse in the very first chapter we kind of see God's original purpose in creation. So the, ver the verse, couple verses right before 
verse 28, says that God created man and woman in his image, right? And then it says, God blessed them. Okay, now who is them? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, right? Now, what have they done at this point to deserve to be blessed by God? Nothing. Nothing. All right, it's not a trick question. Nothing. They were just created. And so when we receive unmerited favor from God, what do we call that? Grace. Grace, right? So God blesses them. He creates them, and then he blesses them. He says to them, enjoy my grace. Enjoy my grace. All right? Then he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, why? What is God envisioning here? Why does God, God want to see this multiplication and filling the earth? What's he envisioning? Why does he want them to multiply? What does he want multiplied? His image. His image, right? They were created in his image to bring him glory, to worship him. And so he wants that multiplied and fill the earth with worshipers. Now, what would that look like, an earth filled with worshipers? Yeah, it looks like heaven, right? It'd be pretty sweet, right? Now, let me ask you this. Had sin never entered into the picture, and they would have scattered and filled the earth with worshipers, would everybody speak the same language and live the same culture, yes or no? No. Let me ask you this. Do languages stay the same? No. They don't, do they? No. I mean, I'm from Iowa, and I come from Iowa to Minnesota, and they don't speak the same word, don't you know? <laughs> right? And then you go to Wisconsin, right? <laughs> yeah. Then we, we have teams come from all over the country. So, yeah, languages don't say... Languages develop different accents and different dialects and become completely different languages. And kind of they adapt to their surroundings, right? So I'm told that Eskimos have 14 different words for snow. But tribes in Papua New Guinea don't have any word for snow. Because right? they don't need it. So, had sin never into the picture, and Adam and Eve would have multiplied and filled the earth with worshipers, not only would the earth be filled with worshipers, but it would have been a mosaic. Over time, it would have become a mosaic of languages and cultures. Not only bringing God the greatest glory. Right? How many of you traveled outside the country and worshiped with people in a different language? Yeah? Do you remember the first time you experienced that? Like, I remember the first time sitting in Thailand, a little village, people completely different than me, different language, different culture, different, look different, everything, but they're worshiping the same God. And all of a sudden, in my mind, God became so much bigger and more glorious than he'd ever been. So, enjoy my grace and extend my glory to the ends of the earth. And there we see the original purpose of creation, to enjoy my grace and extend my glory to the ends of the earth. Now, the problem is, in the introduction to the story, we have three major rebellions. Okay? So if, if you haven't already, open your books to page five. All right? And if you're like Karen, you've already started doodling on your page. <laughs> All right? So, so three major rebellions in the introduction to the story. And for every rebellion, there is a result of that rebellion. But then God sends a rescue to rescue mankind from the result of the rebellion. So you see there in that box, you see rebellion, result, and rescue. Okay? So what is the very first rebellion in the story? Adam and Eve. 
Yeah, the fall. Yeah, the fall. So right in that box, right, the fall. Right, fall. So the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing the eye, desirable for getting wisdom. She ate some. She gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate some. Right? So we have the fall. What was the result then of that rebellion? As What was the result of that sin? Okay, so they're cast out of the garden, and we have this separation from God, right? He said, the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Separation from God. So in the next box, the result is separation. So they're separated from God. So now, what is God going to do to make a way for mankind to come back to God? What's the rescue? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's always the answer, right? Jesus. Yeah, the promise of a deliverer. That Jesus is going to be. It's the promise of a deliverer. And how long in this story do we have to wait before we find out that a deliverer has promised to come? When do we find out about this deliverer? Pretty quick, right? In Genesis 3 6, the woman and the man are eating the fruit. And by verse 15 already, God, speaking to Satan, says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Okay? Her offspring, not of the man or woman, but of the woman, speaking to about the virgin-born Christ. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You will strike his heel of the death on the cross, but that deliverer, that one, that Jesus, the virgin-born Christ, will raise again and destroy the work that Satan did in separating mankind from God. So we have, the, we have the fall, we have a separation, we have the promise to deliver to make a way for mankind to come back to God. But as you said, tell me your name again. Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, as Jordan said, they're cast out of the garden. So life begins outside the garden, right? So Adam and Eve have a son named Cain, and then Cain gets a brother, and Cain hates his brother, right? How long did he hate his brother? As long as he was able uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. most, most they don't really laugh, they just kind of groan. <laughs> but, but I love to say that because I can see people turning to mind. Sorry. So, Cain kills Abel, but Adam and Eve have other children, right? And their children have children, and so on and so on. And the earth begins to get populated, right? And then we have the second major rebellion. Along about Genesis 6. What is the second major rebellion in the story? In Genesis 6, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God looks down and sees man is doing evil continually in the sight of God. So right in that first box, right, corruption. The rebellion, the second rebe major rebellion is corruption. So when God looks down and he sees this, what does he decide to do? What's the result then? What does he decide to do about that rebellion? Flood. Okay? Good. Flood. So he's going to flood the earth. Wipe out every living thing. But one man found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And who was that? Noah. Noah. Right? So what is God going to do to rescue Noah and his family from the flood? What's the rescue? The ark. Right. So the rescue is the ark. So we have corruption. God's going to send a flood. But the rescue is the ark. Rescue Noah and his family. The ark is kind of like a picture of Jesus, right? Because how many doors were into the ark? One. Only one. And who shut the door? God did. And security in him. So, the rains come, 40 days, 40 nights, floods the earth, right? Wipes out every living thing. But eventually the sun comes out, eventually the water starts to dry up, eventually the boat stops, and no one and his family get off the boat. And what's the first thing they do when they get off the boat? 
They built an altar, right? And they thank God. And then in Genesis 9, look what God, they get off the boat and look what God says to Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. Enjoy my grace and extend my glory to the ends of the earth. His purpose hasn't changed. So what happens? Well, Noah's sons and their wives begin to have kids, and their kids have kids, and so on and so on. And the earth begins to get populated once again. But rather than scatter, what do they do? They gather on the plain of Shinar. And then we have the third major rebellion. What's the third major rebellion? Tower. Exactly. Tower of Babel. So right in that box, the third rebellion is the tower. And why did they build the tower? Well, let's see what the Bible says. In Genesis 11, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that, okay, here's the purpose, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Does that not sound like direct disobedience? Isn't that the exact opposite of what God told Adam and Eve and what God told Noah and his family? Scatter and make my name great. And instead, they said, we're going to build this tower to make our name great and not be scattered. And I think they knew that they were in direct disobedience. Because the Bible says when they built this tower, they didn't use stone, but they used brick and they used tar for mortar. Right? So they built this strong, tall tower, almost expecting judgment. Like maybe another flood. And so what was the result then? What did God do? Yeah. So the next box writes scattering. What's the result? He scattered them. He scattered them. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them in the face of the whole earth. So what God wanted to happen over time happened instantly. Right? And now the scattering, and we have the nations. Okay? But God didn't just want them scattered into nations, but what did he want them doing? Worship, right? He wanted them worshiping. So they're scattered, but what's missing? No worshipers. So what is God going to do to gather worshipers from all those nations? What's the rescue? Genesis 12, we see the rescue. And right in that last box, write the word selection. God makes a selection of a man named Abram. And he makes him a promise that is foundational to the rest of the story. And so here in Genesis 12, it begins the plot or the storyline of the story. So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What word do we hear over and over again? Bless. Bless, right? Enjoy my grace. Why is God going to bless Abram? What does it say there? So that you will be a blessing. To who? Be a blessing to who? All peoples. All peoples. Now, notice it doesn't say to all people. Okay? People is just everybody, individuals, anybody, everybody, right? But instead, it says, 
peoples. This is already plural. How does it change when we add an S to the end of that word and now peoples? Okay, yeah. Different groups of people, right? What we call people groups. So what is the definition of a people group? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> a people group is a significantly large grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity with one another because of language and culture. It's why a group of people call us, us, and them, them, right? Language, the language we speak, the, com the common culture. And so, uh, God scattered, we have all these different people groups, right? Another way we might define a people group, especially for the purposes of, of, of evangelism and missions, it's the largest group of people through which the gospel can spread as a movement before it encounters barriers of understanding and acceptance, Okay, so let me illustrate. So as we look at all the countries of the world, pretty much every country in this world is like the state of Minnesota. Minnesota is the land of what? 10,000 10, lakes, right? So if I take a rock and I throw it in one of those lakes, plop, it'll land a little, and those ripples will start from that rock, right? And those ripples, they may go all the way to the edge of the lake, but will they jump into a new lake, yes or no? No. So if I want to start ripples in a new lake, what do I need? A new rock. A new rock, right? And so countries of the world are filled with different people groups. That's a different people groups, so different language, different culture, different barriers to understanding and accepting the gospel. Yeah. So God looks down, he scattered the nations, and he loves them all equally. And he wants to gather worshipers back from all those nations. So he selects one man named Abram to make a new nation, right? And through this nation, he's going to extend his glory to all nations, right? And so he makes this promise to Abraham. He repeats it again in Genesis 18, 18. And then he repeats it again in Genesis 22. Now, you probably know the story in Genesis 22. Abraham has taken his son Isaac up to the mountain, right? And he's supposed to sacrifice him. And so he builds an altar. He lays his son, Isaac, on the altar. He pulls back a knife. He's about ready to put it through his chest. And what happens? God tells him to stop. Yeah, an angel of the Lord speaks. So God speaks heaven and tells him to stop. <laughs> and then what does he see in the bush? A uh, goat. <laughs> yeah, there's a ram caught in the thicket. So, right? Now, so, so Jehovah Jireh, God's provided himself a lamb, right, or a ram. Now, before they leave that scene, before they leave that spot, an angel Lord speaks to Abraham from heaven a second time. What did he say the second time? Okay, if you have your Bibles, look at Genesis 22. Because we don't want to miss this. Genesis 22. Let's start reading in verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. 
Okay? Now look at verse 15. They're still there. And now and the angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. We love to teach about God's grace. Jehovah Jireh, he provided himself a ram. But we have a great disconnect between the grace of God and the purpose of that grace is to extend his glory to all nations. And so three times he makes that promise to Abraham. Then he repeats that promise to his son Isaac. And he says, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars to the sky, and we'll give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So three times to Abraham, and then to his son Isaac, and then to his grandson Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. He makes the promise five times to three generations. Five times, three generations, the same promise. What point is he trying to get across? <laughs> do it and that it's the family business if you're in the family this is what our family does this is the purpose of our family Abram's name was changed to Abraham what does Abraham mean? father of a multitude of nations how is Abraham going to become the father of a multitude of nations? well who does Paul say are the children of Abraham? All who believe. All who believe. Exactly. And those believers are going to come from where? Every tribe and language and tongue and nation. As the children of Abraham scattered. So, Paul talked about the children of Abraham who are heirs according to the promise. So who are those children of Abraham that are heirs according to the promise who have the responsibility to spread the news of the gospel to all nations. Who are those children that have that responsibility? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's go to the world. You get my point. Alright? So, think about this. The rest, of the rest of the Bible, God is referred to as who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why always those three? Why not the God of Moses, the God of Samuel, the God of Daniel, or whatever other Old Testament hero? Why only those three? Because that's who we made the covenant with, right? That's who we made the promise with. And every time they heard the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were reminded to enjoy my grace and extend my glory to all nations. It's all about you growing up in Sinai school, always hearing about Israel, is God's chosen people. And I equate it chosen with favorite, right? But it's not favorite. They were chosen with this global purpose of bringing God glory among the nations, extending God's glory to the nations. So then we have to ask, so why does God allow it to happen? What happens to this family then? Because remember the story, right? Jacob has 12 sons. And what, what son do all the brothers hate? Joseph, right? So they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And he goes from slavery to prison. 
but then he interprets the dreams, and he ends up second in command of all of Egypt, right? And the brothers, during the famine, come to get food. Joseph reveals himself to them through a series of events. It's a reunion. They go back to tell their father, Jacob, whose name's changed to Israel. And so Israel brings his whole family. So the whole, all the family of Israel is now in Egypt. But over time, what happens? Well, new pharaohs come along, and all of a sudden, these children of Israel find themselves as slaves in Egypt. Probably two million people at this time. So if they have this global purpose, why does God allow this to happen? And we know it is a part of his plan, because he told Abraham in Genesis 15 that your descendants will go down to a country not their own, will be enslaved there for 400 years. So understanding that slavery in Egypt was a part of his plan, it helps us understand the purpose of the Exodus. Because while they're in slavery, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, right? And he tells Moses that he's going to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he sends Moses to go do it, right? And so he sends Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh for the first time to tell him to let Israel go. Turn to Exodus 5. I want to look at that real quick. Of what he says the first time he goes to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. It says, Afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Now, listen to Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Who, who, who's this God of Israel? Why do I have to obey him? I got my own gods. I'm not going to listen to this. He's just one of many gods. Right? And so if it was, if the only purpose was to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt... God could have just sent, with one hand, just sent one plague and wiped all of Egypt out, right? And they could have just casually walked out, right? In fact, that's what he said. That's what God says. And, and, and he says to Moses in Exodus 9, he said, The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. For by now, he said, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that have wiped you off the earth. I could have done that. I could have just sent a plague and wiped you out, but I didn't. So he sent how many plagues instead? Ten. Why ten? Well, look at the purpose. He says, but I've raised you up for this very purpose. Okay, here it is. That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of the Exodus is a display of power, power and proclamation. Okay? Display his power so his name is proclaimed throughout all the earth. So how did God display his power? Through ten plagues. In fact, Exodus 12, 12 says that God brought judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Right? So he brought judgment on the god of the Nile when he turned it into blood. And he brought judgment on Ra, the sun god, when he caused darkness over the land. He brings judgment against all the gods of Egypt, separating himself as not just one of many gods, but as the only god. 
the God of the universe. And through that, through that display of power, his name was proclaimed throughout the earth. And if you travel almost a thousand years later, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 15, Daniel is praying before the nation of Israel. And he makes reference in his prayer to the Exodus. And he said, through the Exodus, he said, God, you made for yourself a name that endures to this very day. So it was through that Exodus that God made for himself a global reputation. It's always about his name being made known among the nations. And so he makes for himself a global reputation. Now, how important was this global reputation to God? Well, think about this. As they finally left Egypt, right, and they cross the Red Sea, and we know what happens. They part of the waters, they walk across, soldiers die, and they get to the edge of the Promised Land. And before they enter the Promised Land, what did they do? Do you remember? Yeah, they sent out spies. How many spies? Twelve. Twelve. Ten were good and two were bad. You know that song? <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah. That was the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they sent twelve spies. Right? <laughs> Did I say ten were good? No, yeah. ten were good. Yeah, ten were. <laughs> ten were bad and two were good. <laughs> right. And who were the two that you brought back a good report? Joshua and Caleb. The other ten began to whine and complain. Ah, oh, we're going to die here. We should go back to Egypt and whine and complain, right? And that got all of Israel whining and complaining. And Moses has to listen to two million whining and complaining Israelites, and God heard them too. So what does God decide to do? He says to Moses, that's it, Moses. I'm going to wipe everybody out, and I'm going to make a new nation sort of with you. And so Moses goes to God in prayer. And look what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. God, if you do this, if you wipe everybody out, the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. And you go before, before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, eh, the Lord wasn't able to bring these people to the land he promised them an oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. His prayer is, God, your global reputation among the nations is at stake. And so God doesn't wipe them out, does he? Instead, he allows them to wander through the wilderness. The old generation dies out. The new generation comes. And they enter the promised land, led by Joshua, along with Caleb. And what's the first thing they have to cross to get into the promised land? The Jordan River. And what did God do to the Jordan? He blocked it up. He blocked it up, just like he did the Red Sea. Why, why did he do that to the Jordan? To show them who he is. Ah, you're getting it. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> the obvious answer was so they could cross. But Micah is smarter than that. <laughs> because that's exactly what Joshua said. Right? After the fact, Joshua was speaking to the children of Israel, and he says this. The Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until he crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan when he'd done the Red Sea. When he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that, here's the stated purpose, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and you might always fear the Lord your God. Every event in Israel's history has this one thing in common. It was God showing his glory through Israel 
to all nations in order to receive glory from all nations through worship. Right? And so they enter the promised land. They begin to defeat the enemies of the land. For a while they're ruled by judges, but eventually they say, we want a king like everybody else. So Israel gets a king. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Good king or bad king in the end? Bad. So King, king Lehine shifts families, and who becomes the second king of Israel? David. I was looking at you. You should know that. Are you named after David? No. Because Justin's not really a biblical name. Is there a Justin in the Bible? So it's probably. Uh, anyway. We'll talk about that later. Good king, bad king. Good. Man after God's own heart. He had his problems, but we all do. And then David has a king named Solomon. And when Solomon becomes king, God says to Solomon, Ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And what does he ask for? Wisdom. Now let me ask you this Do you think Israel was enjoying God's grace? When they had a king who received wisdom from God to lead them? Yes or no? Absolutely, right? In fact, look at 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, listen to this description. This is under King Solomon. It says, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So Israel comes under, I mean, the promised land comes under Israel's control to the greatest extent at this time. So yes, they are enjoying God's grace. But while they're enjoying God's grace, do you think God is extending His glory to the nations? Say yes. Yeah. <laughs> sure, because look at 1 Kings 4.34. It says, From all nations people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who heard of his wisdom. And so if you turn over a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 10, we see one of those world leaders coming as the Queen of Sheba. Who comes? In 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And obviously he passed, because if you go down to verse 6, she said to the king, The report I heard of my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I've heard. How happy your men must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. So listen to her response. Listen to her conclusion. Verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. So what does she do? She gives glory to God. She gives glory to God. Enjoy my grace and extend my glory to all nations. It's during this time under Solomon that he built the temple. Right? And the temple was built to be used for what? Worship. Worship. Right? And who was to come and worship at this temple? For who? Worship for who? All people. Good, Nate. Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Solomon, after he built the temple, is praying a prayer of dedication. 
for the temple, right? And he says this as part of the prayer. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land. Why? Because of your name. That proclamation, right? For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and know that this house I have built bears your name. The nations, when they heard, when his name was proclaimed among the nations, the nations would come and worship. Now, understanding the purpose of this, the global purpose of this temple, gives us some insight when we go to the New Testament. And one day Jesus walks into the temple, and in the area called the Court of the Gentiles, what does he see that makes him mad? Yeah, they're selling uh, sacrifices at inflated prices, and 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 the the global purpose of the temple was lost in the commercialization of this outer court. And so, what does Jesus do? Yeah, he flips the tables, right? He just starts throwing them out. He beats them and drives them out of the temple. And he says, "What? My house shall be called a house of prayer." And you have made a den of robbers, but there's something in between there. For all nations. For all nations, right? He wasn't mad because they weren't praying in the temple, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying in the temple, but a lot of, a lot of I've seen that in churches where they take that verse, my, name's, my house should be called a house of prayer. Stop. And they put that on the wall and say the purpose is prayer in the church. Nothing wrong with praying, but that's not, that's not what made Jesus angry. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made that down. You've lost the global purpose of this temple. Now, one thing I need to point out as we talk about this, in the original temple, there was no court of the Gentiles. They weren't meant to be kept separate. We're not supposed to have a white church and a black church and a Mexican church and an Asian church. That doesn't bring God the greatest glory. You know, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood to preach and 3,000 were saved, where was Peter standing when he preached? Does anybody know? In the court of the Gentiles. Because the gospel is to go to all nations. Amen. Sweet. Now, Solomon Gold, though, he had a problem. What was his problem? Too many wives. Too many wives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As Solomon Gold, his wives, plural, turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. So these wives turn him after other gods, and Israel goes into idolatry. And eventually what happens? Eventually God allows them to be defeated militarily because of their idolatry. And so uh, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I poured out my wrath on them, talking about Israel, because they shed blood in the land and because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, what did they do? They profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. What does it mean to profane the name of God? If we profane his name, it means to lower it, to, to make it common, to, to treat God as if he's just one of many gods. Now, what has God done up to this time? To separate himself from all other gods. To build for himself this global reputation. 
And then Israel goes into idolatry and profanes his name. And so they're carried off into captivity. And that's Nebuchadnezzar comes and he carries away some young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But even in captivity, God is still extending his glory among the nations. Because in captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, right? And when the music plays, you bow. Music plays, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Shadrach and Betty for short. Veggie Tales, you guys watching? They don't bow, do they? And so what happens to them? Throw them in the fiery furnace, right? And they burn up and die. That's a really sad story. <laughs> okay, you're listening. <laughs> no. The only thing that burnt were the ropes on their hands, right? And they step out of the furnace, and their, their clothes don't even smell like smoke. Now, that's generally where we then stop the story, and we preach about God's grace, right? Not incorrect, but it is incomplete. Because what actually happens as a result of them not bowing to the idol. Well, they come out of the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Can you imagine a world leader standing up in the United Nations tomorrow and making a speech that's translated to all the world's leaders and says, there's no God in Jesus. That's who you should follow. That's what happens. Well, Connor, I'm sure you're familiar with this history. But what happens to the Babylonians? The Persians come in, and the Persians defeat the Babylonians. And we get a new king, a Persian king, named King Darius. And the wise men tri tricked Darius into making a, 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 a law that you can't pray to anybody but him. And what does Daniel do? Well, he just keeps right on praying, right? And so he's thrown into the den of lions. And he got eaten up, spit out. No, right. no it didn't happen, did it? Daniel, uh, are you okay? The next morning, Daniel says, live forever, king. God shut the mouths of the lions. And then again, we stop the story, and we preach about God's grace. Not incorrect, but it's incomplete. Because what happens? Well, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Now that leader has gone to the United Nations and he's wrote a paper and translated every language and delivered it to every world leader. There's no God like the God of Jesus, and that's what we should follow. So God is extending his glory to the nations. Well, eventually God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity, and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they've committed against me, and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city, Jerusalem, will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and trouble the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. And Ezekiel 5, 5 tells us that God set Jerusalem in the center of the nations. Now, as we look at the book of Psalms, Psalms talks a lot about the nations and God's heart for the nations. I just picked out two Psalms because I think they're familiar to us. How many have heard this verse before in Psalm 67, 1? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. 
How many have heard that before? Okay, almost all of us, right? And that there's not a period there, so what's the rest of it? Why are we asking for God to be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us? For what purpose? Who knows the rest of it? Ah, Mike, you're good. So that, verse 2 goes on to say, we pray this, God be gracious, bless us, make your face shine upon us, so that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Again, why do we focus on verse 1 and leave out verse 2? Because we love God's grace, but we forget the responsibility of being blessed with His grace is so that we can extend His glory to all nations. We're so busy managing our blessings, we've forgotten the responsibility that comes with it. Here's another one that you might know from Psalms. Be still and know. Exactly, yeah, that's the whole verse. All right? And then if you look at the prophets, Habakkuk 2.14, I picked that a couple. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How many of you know the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord? Amen? With the knowledge. That's what's missing. That's what's missing. A lot of people have no knowledge of God. No knowledge of the name of Jesus. And then Malachi, the very last book, Malachi 1.11, my name will be great among the nations. The next time somebody asks you, can you give me some verses from the Bible that talk about God's heart for the nations? Do you have a few more verses in mind? Yes? No? <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's, it's what the whole Old Testament is about. It is the story of the Old Testament. Right? And, and in case you're not convinced by what I've said, you will believe Jesus, right? In Luke 24... Jesus has already died, resurrected, and he's not yet ascended, so he spent those days on earth before his ascension, right? And there's a day the disciples are eating, and Jesus walks into the room. They're kind of freaked out, and they think he's a ghost, until they fill the holes in his hands and his side, and he sits down and eats with them, and they realize, no, this is the resurrected Jesus. After they eat, he, he sits down to teach them, and he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, what's he referring to when he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? The Old Testament, right? So he says, this is what is written in the Old Testament. They opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. They told them, this is what is written. Here is Jesus' summary of the Old Testament. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. There's that grace, Right? the death of Christ and the resurrection. And then verse 47, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Extend my glory to all nations. He says, Jesus says, let me summarize the Old Testament for you guys. Enjoy my grace and extend my glory to all nations. That's what it's all about. So as we look at the Old Testament, we realize though that while Israel did enjoy his grace, they failed to extend his glory. And then we have those 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As the New Testament opens up, Jesus is born into a Jewish world that doesn't even believe that God wants to save the nations. And it's in that context that before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he gives us the great recommission. Now, did you catch that? It's the great recommission. Because this is not the first time 
that God's desire to reach all nations has been, has been communicated. But this time, it's not to Israel. It's to us. And so we, we often refer to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but the Great Commission is also spoken in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It's mentioned in Luke 24, which we just read there. It's in John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then also in Acts 1, 8. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. Right? And after Jesus speaks these words in verse 8, what happens in verse 9? As soon as he spoke those words, what did he do? To the ends of the earth, it is the ultimate mic drop ever. He just takes it up. And the disciples are standing there looking, watching him go up, and they're just looking in the sky, kind of wondering what's happened. And two men dressed in white appear. And they say, why are you looking into the sky? This same Jesus who left is coming. And by implication, they're saying, go do what he said to do, right? So what do they do? Well, they went back to Jerusalem, and they waited for the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, right? And filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands to preach on the day of Pentecost in the court of the Gentiles. 3,000 people are saved and baptized, and we have the beginning of the church. And then over the next few chapters of Acts, we see phenomenal growth of the church, Right? Miraculous signs and wonders are, are taking place. Every day people are being saved. The, the disciples are being multiplied. Even many priests are turning to Christ. And by the end of chapter 6 of Acts, we have a church of thousands in Jerusalem. But God's not impressed. He's not impressed with the church of thousands when his commandment is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what does he do in chapter 7? He allows Stephen to be killed. He allows the first Christian martyr in chapter 7. And then what happens in chapter 8? Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Persecution turned these people into goers. And they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And what do they do in Judea and Samaria? Well, verse 4 says, Those who have been scattered... Preach the word wherever they went. So now the gospel has left Jerusalem. Now the gospel is becoming a movement to go to the ends of the earth. And who is responsible for beginning this movement? They. <laughs> they, right? There's no name mentioned there. It's just they. Who are they? Average church members. And I'm thinking if that's who God originally used, that's who God's going to continue to use to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Average church members, average Christians, like me and you. We're the ones that God is going to use. People like you are who God's going to use to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People like you that have skills and training and degrees to get you to the place where the gospel is not yet gone. So, not only were they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, if we travel forward to Acts 11... It says, those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about Jesus. Okay, now, it's not just Jewish now. 
man, it's going to the nations because Antioch is a multicultural, multicultural city. And what happens in Antioch? A church starts that's also multicultural. And we know that because we can look at the leaders there of that church. Uh, you have uh, Simon called Niger, black guy. You have a uh, man from, the, from the, um, Simon of Cyrene, which is a, a, a port in North Africa. You have Mannion, who was, who was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. So he had to be wealthy. So you have rich, poor, uh, black, white. You have this multicultural church. In, in, in Jerusalem, the people were, it was a Jewish church. It was so Jewish, it was like a sect of Judaism. But now what do we call these people? Because they're not Jews. They're from all over. And they were first called Christians in Antioch. And it was while these leaders were, were fasting and praying, worshiping the Lord, what does God say to them? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands and they sent them off. So we have the very first church in history intentionally sending out missionaries. They weren't being sent in response to what was happening. They were sent intentionally to places where nothing was happening. Spoiler alert, we're almost done, but this is how the story ends. And I know a lot of you don't like to read the end of the book before you get through the whole thing, but this is how it ends. John, the, the, one of the disciples, was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, and there God gave him a revelation. And that revelation, he says, I looked before me in a multitude that no one could count, from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, worshiping around the throne. Think about this. That day has come, and you and I are in heaven, and we're there before the throne. And we're looking at Jesus. We can still see the scars in his hand. Maybe the scars on his brow from the crown of thorns that was crushed down. And we're looking at Jesus. Now, I don't know if, you, if we'll be able to take our eyes off of him, even for a second. We might not be able to. But if we do, if we take our eyes off him just for a second, and we look to the left, and we look to the right, what are we going to see? We're going to see the Rajput, and the Gujarati, and the Pashtun, and the Gaujong, and the Mahjong. And the Uyghur, and the Wei, and the Lantan, and the So, and the, and the Puan, and the Hmong, and on and on and on. People from the tribe and language and tongue and nation worshiping around the throne. All of history, all the events of history have been leading to this one moment when people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation are worshiping around the throne. Now, where are we at in this story? Because that's not yet happened. Well, you notice I left a gap there, right? You guys have come here and part of Bethlehem Baptist Church, right? And you have to ask the question this weekend, am I living this story? Or am I living my own story and trying to stick God into it? You see, a lot of people ask this question, God, what's your will for my life? Right? Maybe you've asked that question. The one problem I see with that question is this. When we ask God, what's your, what's your will for my life? The response is usually this. Well, what do you like to do? What are you passionate about? Where do you get them? What, what, what do you enjoy? Well, I like to do this. I like to do this. And, and who does that make the beginning point for finding God's will for our life? So before we ask God, what's your will for my life? Maybe we should be asking the question, God, what's your will? What's your will? This is his will. That if you try the language of tongue and nation and worshiping around the throne. And then we ask God, how do I fit into that story? When we make our plans first, and then we try to stick God into our story, a lot of people do that and try to Christianize their life. 
Okay, what do I enjoy doing? Now I'm going to go do it for God. I'm going to Christianize my life. But did God ever ask us to Christianize our life? Seems like I remember him saying, not Christianize it, but crucify it. Crucify it. Die to your goals, your dreams, your desires, your plans. You have no right to live those out. You have been bought with a price. You belong to him. Without him, we have no life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So the question I challenge you with, and everything else the rest of the week flows out of this, is how are you living his story? And that's where we're going to land on Sunday night. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your story. And as we've looked... This, this thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation, that, that overarching theme, that, that one story. The Bible is just simply your, the story of your plan to gather worshipers from all nations. And God, that's the story we were created for. Forgive us for trying to create our own. But God, I pray for these students here this weekend. I pray that they'll be asking that question. I pray on Sunday, Lord. The, the, the throughout the rest of the evening and the day tomorrow and the people they talk with and the things that we learn and the more that we look at in your word will come away on Sunday. Maybe having a clear picture of what it looks like to live your story, whether that's here or somewhere around the globe. So thank you for this time. And bless the rest of your evening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.